This is Archive Atlanta, episode 98, Women's Suffrage. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Before we get started with today's topic, I want to put out a call for questions for another Q&A episode that I want to do for my 100th episode. So it can be about anything, Atlanta history, podcasting, how I do what I do, or even personal questions within reasonable limits. All my contact info is in the show notes and you can send your questions to any of those options. With Election Day under a month away, and August marking the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, I thought there was no better time to talk about women's right to vote in Atlanta. Unsurprisingly, we did things a little differently down south, and Georgia women did not vote until 1922, two years after the Constitutional Amendment. But we'll get to that. So this week, we're talking about women's suffrage, the groups that started it in Georgia, in Atlanta, who started them, what they accomplished, and also the anti-suffragists, because yes, we had those two. Let's start with a brief primer on women's right to vote in the United States. The Seneca Falls Convention was held in 1848, and attendees passed a resolution in favor of women's suffrage. The first national women's rights organizations were created in 1869, and there were two different factions. One was run by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and the second by Lucy Stone and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. And the first congressional amendment was introduced in 1878 by Senator Aaron Sargent, who was a friend of Anthony's. So for over two decades, these two suffrage groups existed until finally joining forces in 1890 as the National American Women's Suffrage Association. They got a huge national boost by garnering support from the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was an organization that formed in 1873 and focused mainly on prohibition, but got into other causes later on. Many people don't realize that women across the country were able to vote in limited ways well before the passage of the amendment. Wyoming granted women the right to vote in 1869, Utah was 1870, and Colorado was 1893. In cities that weren't out west, women, typically white and wealthy, were able to vote in municipal elections or certain other elections throughout the year. In 1890, the Georgia Women's Suffrage Association was formed by Helen Howard. It had five members, and three of them were sisters. The group got a boost from new member Mary Latimer McClendon, who joined in 1892. And this was the same year that the National American Women's Suffrage Association formed a Committee on Southern Work. And McClendon was a prohibition leader who came from a very political family. She was born in DeKalb County, and moved to Atlanta in 1860. She temporarily moved away during the war, and then moved back after it was over. In 1894, she founded the Atlanta chapter of the Women's Suffrage Association, which was the second local group to establish in the entire state. So like I said earlier, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU as we'll call it, endorsed women's suffrage. But that was the national group. And so in May of 1893, the local chapter of the WCTU met to discuss voting. Sure, the national organization is pro-suffrage, but the women here didn't really know which way they wanted to go. President McClendon made this hilarious reference to hiding in her basement when Sherman and Union troops had reached Atlanta, and she says that she, quote, has had enough of secession, end quote. After some impassioned speeches, the suffrage position was adopted, and the only dissent came from Mrs. Sibley from Augusta. 
1894, the Equal Suffrage League was formed, which is a chapter of the Georgia Women's Suffrage Association, and it held monthly meetings inside a Unitarian church at the corner of Forsyth and Church Streets. Mrs. T.C. Swift was president, and McClendon would later serve as vice president. The women say they do not confine the group to just suffrage, but anything that is calculated to improve and elevate the condition of women. Meetings are open to either sex, men often attend, and they work on drafting legislation that would enact their voting rights, and then they also pushed locally for the hiring of a police matron in the police department. So for reference, um, a police matron was something that early departments used to deal with women and children in relation to police custody. So like they weren't really a police officer, but they assisted officers when they dealt with these two groups of people. In their second year of existence, the group is referenced as the Equal Suffrage Association. Um, Then someone changes the name to Atlanta Suffrage Association. Needless to say, this was a really hard topic to research because I had probably 20 group names that once I pieced together their origin story, realized that half of them were the same group with just different names. Before we keep going, it's time to talk about the opposition, or the antis, as they prefer to be called. The anti-suffrage women of the South had several different convictions, but the basics were this. They believed in a strict, traditional, patriarchal role of women. The idea was that if they could vote, it would be demeaning to Southern men who had just suffered a defeat in the Civil War. There was a strong support of states' rights, which made them against a federal amendment. And then there was Jim Crow, of course. We cannot talk about Southern white women voting without mentioning black women, and it was almost impossible for white women to reconcile this. Most of the anti-suffrage literature from this time is all about the big problem that they believed would occur if they enfranchised black women to vote. Brewers and distillers were often anti-suffrage because they worried that if women voted, they would vote for prohibition and then shut down their businesses. And southern cotton mills were also antis because they worried that the female vote would end child labor. The National Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage started in 1911. It was led by Mildred Rutherford, who was also president of the Georgia chapter of the United Daughters of Confederacy. I know, shocking. In a 1914 speech to the state legislator, she says explicitly, women who are working for this measure are, quote, striking at the principle for which their fathers fought during the Civil War. Women's suffrage comes from the North and West and from women who do not believe in states' rights and who wish to see Negro women using their ballot, end quote. She also says something along the lines of how, you know, Georgia has sunk so low that her good men cannot legislate for women. But let's go back to 1895. So the year the National American Women's Suffrage Association held their annual meeting in Atlanta. This was the first time it was not held in D.C., so it was a big deal. Inside DeGive's Opera House, Susan B. Anthony attended, as well as 93 delegates from 28 states. Black women were excluded, but Anthony did speak to them at the Atlanta University campus. In that audience was Adela Hunt Logan, who would later become the first lifetime member of the organization. The following year, Black women would form their own National Association of Colored Women um, in D.C., and Lugenia Hope Burns was a member who I talked about in the Neighborhood Union episode. At the same time here in Atlanta, the Equal Suffrage Society forms with over 60 Atlanta women as members. Local attorney Charles Reed prepared a bill for them, but it never makes it out of committee. 
The group names morphed a little bit, as they all do, but they are all continuously led by Mary Latimer McClendon. And they devised this plan. So they said that every woman in the group, who's 21 and up, is going to try and register to vote in the presidential election. They all were behind William Jennings Bryan. So the idea is register to vote, you know, they're going to say no, and then they would trigger a lawsuit that they could use to fight in court. In 1899, the GWSA held its first convention in Atlanta, and they passed several resolutions, among them that women shouldn't pay taxes if they can't vote, and also that the University of Georgia should allow entrance to female students. And they would actually use this taxation argument for several years to come. In 1902, the women of Atlanta petitioned to vote in municipal elections, but they were rejected, and they sent an appeal to Mayor Mims from the Equal Suffrage Association, reminding him that 70% of the 1896 tax money they got was paid by women. So if we're good enough to pay our taxes, we are good enough to choose our representation. And so Mims gives this so such political response and he's like, gives this big hearted like, amen, I'm with you ladies, but you know, the laws need to be changed and you know, there's not so much I can do. And so right now you can help by getting your fellas to vote for this upcoming bond issue. 1913 was an active year for the suffrage fight in Atlanta. The Georgia Women Equal Suffrage League was formed and led by Atlantan Frances Smith Whiteside. She was a sister of Hoke Smith, which is really ironic because Hoke Smith was vocally opposed to women voting. There was even a Georgia Men's League for Women's Suffrage, which was formed by local attorney Leonard Grossman. The Constitution newspaper established a women's suffrage department, and, you know, people were kind of changing their tune. Now, the Atlanta Police Department, though, Chief Beavers kind of killed the conversations about hiring a female officer. He felt that he gave the women their police matron, you know, back in 1894, and that was good enough. 1914 was also the first year that the Georgia legislator considered the issue of women's suffrage and Representative Barry White introduced an amendment to the state constitution. 200 women packed the Capitol, some pro and some anti, but several leaders gave speeches to the House Constitutional Amendment Committee. Representing the antis was Dolly Blount Lamar, who was born in Macon, daughter of a former senator, graduate of the Wesleyan Female College in Macon, and then another graduate of Wesley Women's College in Massachusetts which she only attended after the school guaranteed that, quote, no Negro girls attended, end quote. When she returns to Georgia, she married Walter Lamar and joined the Georgia Federation of Club Women and served as president of the United Daughters of Confederacy. Her fellow anti-speaker was Mildred Lewis Rutherford, who I mentioned earlier, but she ran the Lucy Cobb Institute in Athens, and she was considered the historian of the UDC, so she was the promoter of the lost cause. Representing the pro-suffrage group was Felton, McClendon, and Ida Cheatham. And so legislators listened to all these women, and then they defeated the measure by one vote and recommended that the House reject the amendment. So the antis won. And with this momentum, they organized the Georgia Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage, which was the first Southern branch of this national organization. It was led by Dolly Lamar, and it went from 36 members to 2,000 members really quickly. During the 1915 legislative session, suffrage measures were introduced once again in both houses, 
Atlanta suffragists held a May Day rally on the steps of the Capitol building that's in downtown Atlanta today. So I try to imagine that when I go by. And then they held something during, uh, they called it the Harvest Festival. They marched in a parade with hundreds of people. There was 200 students uh, in caps and gowns. They had marchers wearing votes for women sashes. Uh, There was decorated cars. I think Latimer was driving the main car. And there was a brass band. On horseback, leading the women of the parade, was Eleanor Raoul. Finally, in 1919, the women of Atlanta were allowed to vote in municipal primary elections. An action decided with a 24 to 1 vote. And this made them the first city in Georgia to allow women to vote. 4,000 white women registered and 4,000 white women voted. So 100% success rate. Why only white women? Because this was a white primary. And that is a future episode for another day. Mrs. Preston Arkwright, her husband owned the future Georgia Power, writes in an editorial to the Constitution that says, quote, the women of Atlanta will never be slacker citizens, end quote. By August of 1920, the United States passes the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which granted all women the right to vote. But not so fast. The anti-suffragists of Georgia were not going down without a fight, and our solely white male legislator was also not ready to allow women to vote. Shortly after the amendment, the Attorney General of Georgia repeals all conflicting laws on the books. He says the amendment is sound, you know, women are legally about to vote, you don't have to register, you're ready to go, you know, the primary is coming up, the general elections. And I don't know if this was a canned statement that he just felt like he needed to say because he was Attorney General, or this was something he believed in. I'm going to go with the first option. But it's safe to say that Atlanta did not take note. For two months, Mary McClendon fought to have a process put into place on registering women's voters. You know, women are calling her from around the state and they're like, well, what's going on? You know, I thought we're allowed to vote. How does this work? And she continuously gets the runaround from officials. My favorite direct quote from her says, let us not lay the flattering unction of our souls that Georgia men want women to vote. They do not. They have proved that since 1895. On election day of 1920, Warren Harding and James Cox each vied for the presidency. Hundreds of white women in Atlanta attempted to vote. 79 black women of the 6th Ward of Atlanta cast their ballots. But Judge Thomas Jeffries ordered election managers there to throw out each ticket before being tabulated. What the State Democratic Executive Committee did is they invoked a rule that, sure, women can vote, but, oh, you have to be registered six months prior to an election. This doesn't make any sense because they the constitutional amendment passed in August and this is a November election. And what the state legislator needed to do was pass what is called an enabling act, which would have made voting immediately possible, but they did not. And so because they did not do this, Georgia women did not vote until 1922. Because they knew the fight would never be over, the suffragists formed the League of Women's Voters to carry on their work. In Georgia, all branches of the suffrage societies and leagues and associations merged into the League of Women's Voters of Georgia. Even 20 years later, in 1940, one of the admins of the League was petitioning Congress to abolish the poll tax because Georgia was one of eight states that required it. Coming at it from the perspective that the tax was disenfranchising women voters, we also know that, of course, it was preventing and disenfranchising tons of other people as well. 
So there you have it, the story of women's suffrage in Atlanta, and hopefully an inspiration to exercise that right in November. I know there's a lot of election and voting history left to cover, and I have a few episodes in the works to fill in those gaps. Thank you all for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review in your podcast app and head over to the Patreon page link in the show notes for some mini episodes. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.